Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Our scripture today is from Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught for as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus and Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You may be seated. Before we jump in, let's, let's pray one more time. God, you are worthy. And we celebrate this morning that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And so we want to make much of you this morning. We want to enjoy living another day in your kingdom under your good rule and reign. And so, God, I ask that you would teach us, that you would speak to us through your word, that these words would transform us, and that we would leave here this morning changed, changed from when we walked in the front door. So make much of yourself this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. It's where we're going to be starting in verse 21. And as you're turning there, let me remind you, if you ever forget your Bible, uh, we do have ESV Bibles out in the lobby that uh, we, we try to provide, have them here every week, uh, so that if you forget your Bible or if you're carrying too many kids to make it possible to actually grab your Bible as well, uh, that those can be available to you and if you don't have a Bible or if you ever bring someone, a friend or family member who doesn't have a Bible, uh, please encourage them to take one of those home with them. Uh, we believe the Bible is the word of God, that it, those words bring life to our souls, and we want everyone to be able to have the word uh, with them all throughout the week. And so um, as we preach through the word, we want you to have the word in front of you. So you need to find what works best for you. If it's uh, the verses up on the screen, that's great. If it's a Bible in your lap, it's, if it's your phone or a tablet in your lap, uh, that's good too. But we want the word in front of you. We don't want you to just take our word for it, but to actually see these words uh, for yourself. Well, this morning, our passage is going to bring up the topic of authority. Our passage is going to bring up the topic of authority. Let me define authority for us this morning. The definition of authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. So let me define authority for us one more time. Authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, 
and enforce obedience. And church, we are gonna learn this morning that Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. And we're gonna see that that is a beautiful, freeing, comforting, joy-giving, empowering truth that we are going to delight in this morning, that Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. But I realize me saying Jesus has authority over everyone and everything, I realize that initially might not sit well with us. That initially might just kind of rub us the wrong way. It might not initially sound that beautiful or that freeing or that joyful or that empowering. And the reason it doesn't always feel that great right at first is because we have a problem with authority. We have a problem with authority. Ever since the beginning, there has been a problem with authority. Satan was an angel that wanted to be God and in his pride wanted to have the authority of God and therefore was cast out of heaven. Adam and Eve, when being tempted by Satan in the garden, they were tempted with the thought of wanting to be like God and so they rebelled against the authority of God. And then as sin has entered the world and has been passed down from one generation to one generation, there has been this widespread uh, condition amongst all of us of wanting to be God and wanting to rebel against the authority of God. And so now there is this widespread inherited condition of wanting authority over our lives and having a desire for self-sovereignty. We have rebelled against the sovereign rule and reign and authority of God, and we instead have wanted the authority for ourselves. And if you don't believe me, go and observe the world. Go just make some observations. You go observe humanity. You go observe the movies we make and the songs we sing and the books we write and even some of the bad theology that we believe. If you are being observant, you will notice an underlying condition, a prideful desire for self-sovereignty. If you are observant, you will notice this desire in all of us to want to be God and to want to be the ultimate authority in our lives. We want the power. We want the right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And therefore, we struggle with and wrestle against the authority of God. And I want to share a popular poem with you this morning that I think does a good job at summarizing to you and showing you this underlying condition throughout all humanity of wanting authority, wanting to be God, wanting to be sovereign. And it's a popular poem. You've probably heard it before. It's titled Invictus, Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered. Okay, It was written by an English poet named William Ernest Henley in 1875. And he wrote it after having battled tuberculosis, after losing a leg. And the poem now has been quoted since by many famous world leaders in speeches and in different writings since he originally wrote it. Now, Mr. Henley was an outspoken atheist. And therefore, in his hardships and in his life, he had to primarily look to himself for strength. And I think this poem is so popular not only because it's decent poetry, but because it resounds and strikes a chord with everyone's inherited condition 
of a desire for self-sovereignty. I believe it really captures our desire to want to have the authority that only God has. So listen to this poem. It's titled Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Here's the last stanza. Listen to this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now that last stanza has been repeated and used in famous speeches by people like Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela. And it's not bad poetry. It's not bad poetry. But it is bad theology. It's also, it's not surprising poetry. Like, it doesn't surprise me that someone wrote a poem that was written like this, and honestly, it would probably get a standing ovation in any other large gathering of people, because there has always been this desire since sin entered the world to want authority, to want to be the master of our own fate, to want to be the captain of our soul. But this is what it means to rebel against God. This is what we have done since the beginning. We want authority. We want self-sovereignty. We want to be God. We want to be the master of our fate. We want to be the captain of our soul. And so look with me now at Mark chapter 1. Because here we're going to see Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who is the true master of our fate and who is the true captain of our soul. And here in this passage, I want you to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus having authority over everyone and everything. So look at Mark 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So let's stop there for a sec. A couple of weeks ago, when we preached this last previous passage in Mark, we saw how Jesus is in the region surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And we, we have seen that he started now calling people to follow him. So he called Simon, who he later named Peter, and his brother Andrew, as well as James and John, and now they're following him. And now at this point, he certainly has probably picked up some other followers as well. And so we see Jesus and his followers go to Capernaum, which is one of the towns along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue which a synagogue was a gathering place where the people of God would gather uh, to, to read the scriptures, to be taught the scriptures. Synagogues were different from the temple, okay? There was only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. That's where the priests would make sacrifices to God. But the synagogues were scattered all throughout the land, and they were gathering places for either small groups or large groups to hear the scriptures read and to be taught the scriptures, and so the synagogue would at times have guest teachers, or they would have traveling rabbis, traveling scribes that would stop in and teach in a synagogue. And so here we see Jesus, which not a bad guest speaker, right? Whoever was putting that schedule together, I think really did a good job. They, got, they nailed down God in the flesh to come be the guest speaker in this synagogue, okay? And we look, he now starts to teach. So look at verse 22. 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Notice how he taught and notice how the people responded to his teaching. So first look at how he taught. He taught them as one who had authority. Authority. You see, the scribes and the rabbis in that day, they would read the scripture, but then many times, like we do sometimes here, they would quote other rabbis and scribes and teachers. They would say, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said this, and they would quote other popular, famous rabbis. But Jesus shows up, and he says, I say to you this. He spoke with authority. He spoke like one of the Old Testament prophets did when they would say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus would teach in such a way where he would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He spoke with authority. And this was unlike anything the people had been used to hearing. Now this word authority, we can have a better understanding of it by looking at the two Greek words that Mark uses in his gospel uh, that, are, that are translated authority and power in the English. So the first word is dunamis, dunamis, which is a word uh, that from, from which we get our English word dynamite, okay? It can be translated power or authority, and this word dunamis is referring to the sheer power or ability to do something, okay? So we're going to see all throughout Mark that, that uh, uh, Mark will use this word dunamis to describe Jesus' sheer power or ability. But in this passage, the word that Mark uses for authority is the Greek word exosia, exosia, which can be translated power or authority, but what it means is that he had the right to do it. So dunamis is the sheer power, the ability, but in this passage this morning, Mark is saying Jesus had the exosia. He had the right to do it. He had the right to teach this way, the right to teach authoritatively. He thought, he taught authoritatively. He had the right to teach this way, and he had the right to teach this way because, because of who he is. He had the right to teach this way because of who he is. Jesus' authority and his right, his privilege to teach authoritatively is grounded in who he is. He is God in the flesh. He is the Christ. Later in this passage, we're going to see him be referenced as the Holy One. And then in the book of Acts, we get another title for Jesus that I think sheds some light on why he had the authority or why he had the right to teach the way he did. So in the book of Acts, when Peter and John were going up to the temple, there was a lame man sitting there. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And to everyone's amazement, the man stands up and walks. And everyone's excited, amazed. They can't believe what's happened. And then we read in Acts chapter 3, verse 12, it says, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. 
But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Here it is, verse 15. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. The author of life. Jesus can teach authoritatively because he is the author of life. The author of life has the power or right to give orders in life. The author of life has the right to make decisions in life. The author of life has the right to enforce obedience in life, and it is because he is the author of life. So think about it this way. Doesn't an author of a book have the authority and the power and the right to make decisions and write the story the way he sees best? Like if I'm working on the next great American novel on my computer and the document is pulled up, do you have the right to come and make changes and add characters and change the plot and change the ending? No, you don't have the right to do that. Do I, as the author, have the right to make changes and add characters and change the storyline? Yes. The author has authority. But humanity has rebelled against the authority of the author of life. And now because of our sin nature, we are born with this propensity to rebel. We want to be the master of our fate. We want to be the captains of our soul. We don't want to recognize the authority of the author. No, we want the story of life instead to be like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books, right? Do you guys remember those books, the choose-your-own-adventure books? There were these books where you'd be reading, and you would come to a point in the book where you get to make a decision, right? You get to decide. So, for example, uh, you're reading the book, and it talks about Johnny. He gets to the edge of a river. And it says, if you want Johnny to swim across the river, turn to page 10, okay? If you want Johnny to go the long way and cross over the bridge, turn to page 20. If you want Johnny to grab a a vine and swing across the river, turn to page 30, okay? You guys are familiar with these books, right? Okay. All right. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading these books growing up, I would get really stressed out and anxious, okay? Now, some of that's probably just my personality. I realize that. But when it came to decision time, I would get very anxious about the decision I was about to make. Because here I was with limited knowledge of the situation, and yet I was in full control of the decision that needed to be made. I mean, what if I didn't make the right decision? I really wanted things to work out well for Johnny, right? It seems like he could just swim across the river, but I don't know anything about Johnny. I don't know if he can swim. I don't know how fast the current is going. I don't know how deep the water is, or maybe he could go the long way around and cross over the bridge, but I don't know anything about the bridge. I don't know who built the bridge. I don't know if it's structurally sound, right? I don't know the weight capacity for the bridge, or or what if maybe he could just grab a rope, grab the vine, and just swing across the river, But then I'm like, no, it says turn to page 30, and this book is only 30 pages long. So I know I'm going to turn to that page, and it's just going to be Johnny didn't make it, the end, right? So I can't do that, right? Now, those books are fun. There's nothing wrong with those books, nothing wrong with reading those books, okay? 
But I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure those books have not won too many awards, right? The, like those aren't the, the, the great like top bestsellers, best stories of all time aren't the choose your own adventure books. And why is that? Because what do all of the best award-winning books and novels and stories have in common? The authors have the authority to write the story. The authors have the authority to write the story. In the Choose Your Own Adventure books, the authority is taken away from the author. It is given to the reader. But how can the, really, how can the reader really make the best story? He has limited knowledge. The author is the one that knows Johnny the best. The author is the one that created Johnny. All I know is that Johnny needs to cross the river, but I don't know much about him, the river, or anything that's going to happen on the next page. And so if the best stories are written by good authors, why would we not want our life story to be the same? We've tried to take the authority away from the one who knows us better than anyone knows us and loves us more than anyone loves us, all because we want to be the master of our fate. We want to be the captain of our soul. And then here's another problem. When we don't yield and follow the authority of the author, we end up giving authority to someone or something else. When we don't yield and follow the authority of the author, we end up giving authority to someone or something else. All of us have a source of authority in life. If we are not allowing God to govern our decisions and choices we make, then we will allow someone or something else to govern and be authoritative in those decisions. So many times, if we're not allowing God and God's word to help us govern our decision-making, if we're not living in his authority, many times we will allow our own reasoning to be authoritative in how we live and what we believe. Our own understanding, our own reasoning will then start to govern the decisions we make. And what I mean by this is that, that instead of saying, Jesus says this, therefore I believe this, and therefore I will live this way, Right? Or instead of saying, God's word says this, therefore I will obey this, and therefore I will live this way. Instead of that, we say, well, based on my understanding of this, I will believe this. Based on my reasoning and based on what makes sense to me, I will believe this. And this ends up turning into some false and weird beliefs about God. And it gets really weird because then we start viewing God in light of humanity instead of humanity in light of God. And so we'll say, okay, based on my reasoning, this is what I know about love, right? I know in my understanding of love, love is warm, fuzzy, happy feelings, and Eskimo kisses, right? Okay, this is our understanding, our reasoning about love, so therefore, if God is love, God must always give me warm, fuzzy, happy Eskimo kisses, right? That's what we end up doing. Now, the problem with that is that when hardships come, we say, well, forget this. God is not the God of love like I understood him to be. 
He's failed me. Forget him. My own reasoning and understanding will therefore determine and govern that I will not believe in the God of the Bible. We do that. We view God in light of humanity instead of humanity in light of God. Instead of saying God's word says God is love. God's word says God allows hardships. God's word says he disciplines those he loves. Therefore, I might not understand why I am enduring this or why I am under this hardship, but I know ultimately that God loves me and this is being done for his glory and my good. Instead of allowing God's authoritative word to form and to transform our reasoning and understanding, we've allowed our reasoning and understanding to govern and take authority of our life. Or what about this? When God's word is not authoritative and governing your life, what what commonly will take over? Our emotions and our hearts. Do you not hear this over and over from people in movies and TV and music in real life? They'll say, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, but I know I need to follow my heart. And church, I love you. You guys are amazing. But please, whatever you do, don't follow your heart. But when we don't look to the author of life for authority in life, we many times turn to our emotions and we turn to our hearts. Now, the reason following our hearts gets so dangerous is because of of what God's word says. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And so I say this because I love you. Don't follow your heart. Don't let your heart rule you. Follow Jesus and he will rule your heart. John Bloom, an author for Desiring God, wrote in one of his articles, he said, our hearts were never designed to be followed, but to be led. Our hearts were never designed to be followed, but to be led. And our our emotions, our hearts are beautiful gifts from God that allow us to enjoy and feel and love and experience all the sweetness and goodness in life. Emotions are a great and beautiful thing that God has given to us, but they were never designed to be the authority in life. Jesus has authority over everyone and everything, and this includes our reasoning and understanding, and this includes our emotions and our hearts. Matthew 28, 18 says this, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some authority, all authority. The author of life has the authority. He has the right and the privilege to teach authoritatively. Therefore, all of God's words, not just what Jesus taught in Galilee, but all of God's words are to be authoritative in our lives. 
We know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. Therefore, all of scripture, all of this Bible that I hold in my hand is authoritative in our life. The God who spoke life into existence, who created everything from nothing by the power of his word, the author of life, when he breathes out words, they are authoritative and they have the right to authority in our lives. But here's where we get mixed up, though, because we have this underlying propensity. We want to be the master of our fate, right? We want the authority of God in our life. And when we want that, God's word can then become in our life a book of recommendations. Like, God, I'll retain authority, but let's see if you have any recommendations for me this morning. Or sometimes God's word turn, turns into a book of advice. Like, God, I will keep authority over my life, but let's see if you can give me any advice. Let's see if you can give me a motivational verse or a motivational sermon that I can put on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker that can give me a little pick-me-up throughout the day. But church, that is not how we approach God's word. This is not a book of recommendations. This is not a book of motivational speeches. And this is not a book of advice. This is the word of God. And it does have the right to authority over our lives, over our reasoning, over our emotions. The word has authority over everyone and everything. And then look how they responded to this teaching in Mark 1 verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. Later it's going to say they were amazed. And what Mark is trying to convey with this word astonished is not that they were just surprised or taken off guard. But there's also a sense of they were terrified. They were filled with awe and wonder at this teaching. They were astonished, amazed, terrified because it was authoritative teaching. And if Jesus had ultimate authority, then that means we don't. If Jesus has ultimate authority, then that means I don't. And if Jesus has all authority, then what he says demands obedience. What he says demands obedience. If we believe the author of life has written these words, then what he has written, we must obey. And so we don't open this book lightly. We don't preach it flippantly because we don't approach it as we can pick and choose what we want to believe out of it or not. But listen, I know that even now as we're talking about the authority of Jesus, the authority of the word, there can be this wrestling in our hearts because of that propensity we have to want to rebel against God's authority, to want to be our own authority. And so if you're feeling that wrestling and struggling in your heart right now, it's okay, but let me just uh, ease your mind a little bit about this good God who has all authority. Our all-knowing God is gracious, he is loving, he is merciful, 
And he is a good, good God. And he is a good, good author. He can be trusted to write the best story for his glory and our good. His commands are not rigid, mean, or cruel. His commands are not trying to take away your joy or your pleasures. His word and his commands are actually blessings because the author of life knows how life works best. And so his commands are blessings because they are lighting the pathway for us that leads to life, that leads to everlasting joy, that leads to everlasting pleasures. Listen to this psalm, Psalm 16, verse 11. It says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Therefore, church, we can praise God that the author of life has authority for life. And now look at how Jesus puts his authority on display and demonstrates that he does indeed have the power to exercise his will. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Now it took people, it took people, it took humanity a while to understand who Jesus is and why he could teach with authority. But the fallen angels, who we now know as Satan and demons, they knew exactly who he was right from the start. They knew exactly who Jesus was, and they trembled and they begged in his presence. This unclean spirit knew immediately that he was in the presence of the Holy One, the Holy, Holy, Holy One, who is absolutely holy and the source of all holiness, who is absolutely pure, clean, and righteous, who is absolutely set apart and separate from the Holy One. Darkness knows when it is in the presence of light because it will be absolutely obliterated or cast out in the presence of light. And so here we see Jesus rebuke him saying, be silent, come out of him. And what happened? The unclean spirit obeyed. Look now at verse 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus commands and even the unclean spirits obey him. Even the enemy obeys him. Now, church, we often think too much or too little about the spiritual realm. We sometimes don't think about it uh, at all. We sometimes don't think about the fact that we do have an enemy who tempts us and battles against us and tries to make us ineffective and accuses us and steals, tries to steal our joy. Or we, we swing the pendulum the other way and we think about the spiritual realm too much. We give the enemy too much credit. We think every time we get a flat tire or we get sick that we are under demonic attack. 
And so listen, in this passage, we are presented with the reality that demons are real. And they are on this earth, even in synagogues and churches. But we also see in this passage that Jesus has authority over everyone and everything, and this includes Satan and demons. In Job, Satan had to come and ask God for permission before he did what he was about to do. And here in Mark, Jesus commands, and the demon obeys. So fear not, church. It's not as if there is this battle of good and evil in the world and we are somehow in suspense wondering what the final outcome is going to be. Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. He has defeated the enemy. He has disarmed the enemy. And they know it better than we do uh, that Jesus came to destroy their work. And so Colossians 2.15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so take heart, church. Yes, we do have an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. It is a disarmed enemy. And while temptation and attacks might come our way, we can ultimately rest and trust and know that it is being allowed by Jesus. For we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the work of the enemy has been allowed and is under the authority of Christ. So do not fear the enemy. Do not become enamored with the works of the enemy. The works of the enemy are being allowed by Jesus, and they are under his authority. And even the enemy obeys when Jesus commands. And so here in this passage, we see the authority of Jesus defeat and cast out a lesser authority and free this person from demonic oppression. I mean, think about this person for a second. This person had been possessed and oppressed and ruled up until this point. And they've been going to the synagogue. Who knows how long they've even been going to the synagogue. They've been looking for the true authority, the true author of life to come conquer and rule and save their soul. And Jesus, with the authority that he alone possesses, speaks life to this person. And he disarms, defeats, and exercises his authority over this spirit so that the person might be restored and experience the good rule and reign and authority of Christ. Church, to know and to live in the reality that Jesus has authority over everyone and everything is such a beautiful truth, and it brings us so much freedom and joy. This is good news, church, that Jesus came to destroy and defeat the lesser authorities in our lives so that we might experience the freedom and joy of his authority. The authority of Christ brings freedom and joy. The authority of Christ brings freedom and joy. And if you don't believe me, allow me to give some examples about what the authority of Christ accomplishes in your life. The authority of Christ frees you from anxiety and fear. 
Because we know the author of life can be trusted and we can enjoy life knowing that the author will guide and direct the story of life for his glory and our good. The authority of Christ frees you from your idols of power and control. For we know that we must not strive for these things, but can enjoy lives living in the reality that Christ has ultimate power and Christ has ultimate control. The authority of Christ frees you in marriage, where a man no longer has to domineer to gain control, and a woman no longer has to manipulate to gain control, but now they can enjoy marriage where they both bow to the control and authority of Christ. The authority of Christ frees you from your struggles with your boss, for you are now free to trust that even an unfair and unjust boss is under the sovereign control and authority of Christ. And so you can now joyfully work and worship God through your work, for it is Christ's authority that you are ultimately under. The authority of Christ frees you from your weariness and your feelings of being overwhelmed. Because the weight of the world was never on your shoulders. You can now live with the fullness of joy knowing that the weight of the world has always been and will always be on the strong shoulders of Christ. The authority of Christ frees you to persevere under unjust and unrighteous governments or regimes. You can now live with the joy that any election won or any regime that would take power has done so under the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ frees us as a local church. We now don't have to strive for status or titles or control or self-righteousness, but we're now free to enjoy forgiving, serving, loving, showing grace to one another because we are all people under the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ frees us from sleepless nights of wondering and worrying about the future of our kids. And it allows us to enjoy praying big prayers for them, knowing that wherever Christ leads them, whether it's down the street or to the Amazon jungle, anywhere and everywhere Christ leads them, they will be under the authority of Christ. Church, Christ came to destroy the works of the enemy so that in everything he might be preeminent and supreme. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Church, don't dismiss that, don't excuse that, and don't try to explain that away. Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. So enjoy the freedom and joy that comes from knowing that Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. Now, in conclusion, let me remind you of that poem we read in the beginning titled Invictus, which you remember it meant unconquered. Now, it's okay poetry, but it is delusional. There is no lasting freedom or joy in thinking that you are the master of your own fate or the captain of your own soul. And that reasoning, that thought process, those emotions are undertones of what Satan desired when he was cast out of heaven. And it is what Christ came to free us from. Christ came to free us from living delusionally, living living lives that were delusionally living self-sovereign lives. So that we can experience the freedom and joy 
of living under the good authority of the author of life. We do not rest in the fact that we are unconquerable, invictus. We rest in the fact that Christ has conquered and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. In the early part of the 20th century, Dorothy Day responded to Henley's manifesto with this poem that she titled, Conquered. So hear this poem, her response to Invictus. She writes, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. Here's the last stanza. I have no fear, though straight the gate, he cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let's pray. Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. And we thank you for the joy and the freedom and the comfort that comes from knowing and resting in that truth. God, I ask that you would help us as we struggle and wrestle and want the authority of life for ourselves. Christ, we ask that you would conquer the hearts of those that are rebelling against your authority that they might experience the true joy and pleasures of bowing their knee to your authority. God, we ask that you would accomplish that even today, that you would grow and stir in our hearts a love for you and a love for living under your good rule and reign. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.